Welcome, everyone, to this podcast episode of Unspoken Words. Today is a special recording, another installation of our live chats with parents. For this episode, we're going to focus on questions and discussion related to children ages three to eight with selective mutism. I'm here with Lisa Marie Vargas, your moderator for today, the Communicamp Director and Outreach Coordinator at the SMART Center, and several parents. I'll pass it over to our moderator, Lisa Marie, to get us started. Thanks, Dr. E. So I'm going to go one by one and just prompt you to introduce yourselves. We have four other parents on with us today, which is really exciting. And I'm sure they're coming from all different quarters of the country with different age children. And they may or may not be patients of ours. So it's really exciting to get all these different perspectives. So Jen, if you'd like to start with just your name, your child's age, and where you're from, and then I'll, I'll prompt the next person. My name is Jen. My son is four, and we are from Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Jessica. My daughter is four, and we're from Richmond, Virginia. Hi, my name is Ruth, and I have a daughter who's eight years old, and we're from New York in the Bronx. Hi, my name is Anna, and I have a son who's seven, and we're from Ohio. Thank you so much, guys. So we're going to be jumping right into your questions. We're going to try our best to answer as many of them as you submitted. But again, this is an open discussion. So if there's any follow-up questions, we definitely welcome as much feedback. So we're going to get started with Jessica's questions. Your first question is about school. So I know that you have done some treatment with us already, and you're looking to progress in the school setting specifically. So do you want to tell me a little bit more about, a little more context around your question about school specifically and where your challenges are so we can kind of point our answers a little better? Yeah. So like you said, we've, we've done some treatment with you all. So she's, she's in daycare. She's still in pre-K. But I've been seeing more and more progress with her outside of the school setting. We've had a couple of playdates now that she's actually gone into stage three. She's been fully verbal. I'm seeing her use more of the stage two out at restaurants and busier places like gymnastics for her. But it's tough. Like the school really doesn't let us in still. I mean, a lot of COVID restrictions are lifting. And what little I hear, I just... I haven't quite heard as much progress there. I've been trying to be like, oh, did you use Benny as a whisper buddy at school today? Or, you know, her other friend, Charlotte, that she's talked to. And she usually, she kind of shuts down. She doesn't want to tell me about school. And she's, she's like, I don't talk at school. Yeah, no, this makes sense. So one of the things that I'm definitely going to recommend is that your daughter's, you said four, right? One of the things I recommend is you don't ask her too many questions about what she's doing. When you're asking young children what they're doing, whether they're speaking or not speaking, what it does is it it heightens their awareness and their sense of expectation. So I often talk about silent goals and active goals in games. Silent goals are when we as parents or school sets up the world in such a way that progress happens. So you're talking about the school environment here, the buddy process, really being very proactive with three to five buddies that your daughter is paired with, grouped with, and sat with very strategically. 
in addition, those are the kids that you're focusing on outside playdates with, which I know during co after COVID, it's been hard getting playdates. So meeting after school, meeting before school, meeting on the weekends at the playground, any way to get to set those same kids connected. And then, of course, there's things you can do during playdates to to facilitate progress and then transition that into the school if we're still mute in the school. But the small groups with those buddies and the small groups in the room, such as the spot and the small groups out of the room, such as either a lunch bunch, but in your case with daycare, you might only have half a day. So you may not get a lot of opportunity for outside of the room. But it's interesting, even with trainings, if the school's not going to implement, there's that statement, don't wait, facilitate. They get trained. They're like, okay, this is great. Yeah, we're doing this. We're doing that. We're doing small groups. My question is, what are you doing during those small groups? Are you pairing her and grouping her with those buddies you're focusing on playdates with? Is the teacher using visuals? A great strategy, you know, that we often use with young children are sounds, simple phonetics, which takes the expectation off words. Are they doing that type of strategy with their buddies? Maybe some general competition. So the question becomes, are they doing these strategies that they were trained to do? And more times than not, they don't tend to do it as well. And if you're not aware of it, then, you know, you should be having an update every single week for what that progress is. So asking, having your main teacher or whoever your central liaison is to give you an update on social communication with peers, teachers, one-on-one -on -one and in groups. And if you're going more than a specific time, I usually say 10 days without progress, then that's concerning because children should be making progress. And we did see this in our research that even when we were doing treatment outside of school, and if you're in regular treatment, you're practicing skills outside of school, you're practicing in the real world, you're practicing at home with peers, with guests, you're going out and about, you're doing all the things you need to do, you're engaging with relatives in a certain way, maybe you're playing the interview game or the guess who game. All of that sets the stage, Jessica, for progress in the school. But if it's not being implemented in the school, then that's an issue. But it sounds like your daughter also senses an expectation. So one of my first recommendations is not to ask her to talk to the teachers okay. through email. Yeah. And not... Little kids, it's like that mountain out of a molehill. It's not till they get older that you can really have these discussions because they see it as an expectation and it becomes this big deal. I don't speak in school. I'm not going to talk in school. And then it's all about that expectation. So let's drop that for now and really keep in touch with your teachers behind the scenes and get those updates at least every week on the social communication. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, those are some really good probing questions I can ask the teachers and especially the way I'm just thinking like, oh yeah, do they actually break them out with the small groups? Because I've told them, I said, oh, we had these individual play dates and we had a lot of success with her, you know, moving into stage three. So Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely follow up. Thank you. Another suggestion. <laughs> I really recommend that you spend time, if she's making progress with those peers, transitioning that into the school with those peers, playing games of interest, things that she likes, that she feels confident in. I call that reproducible tasks, things that she knows, she owns, mm -hmm. she understands it more than someone else. And using some general competition where you focus on the other kids first and not about talking, just spend that time in the school. And you're going to see progress there. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Another one of Jessica's questions, which was overlapped with a couple of other question submissions for this episode, was about tips for helping navigate big feelings at home. And similarly, we've had questions about 
emotional like regulation before and after school. So, you know, could you elaborate on that, Dr. E? I know this kind of touches a little bit on like, look, listen and learn. I see all of you nodding like this is an issue. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, they do hold it in a lot throughout the day. And then they come home and they just want to like just either maybe explode and run around and do, or they need to come and almost vegetate. So you have to look, listen, and learn and know who your child is, because I'm just going to let you know that I see both ends of the spectrum where they do well by running around and doing something active. And then they also do well, some other kids with just sitting down and just like vegetating and just relaxing with no expectation. So you have to kind of know because it's all about regulating. And also like, why are they so pent up at school? Is it the not talking or is it maybe some frustration? Is it that they can't get their needs met? Is it the teachers aren't accommodating and seeing when your child may need something? So kind of educating your teachers to like your child's body language. Do they seem anxious? Do they seem relaxed? Do they seem stiff with younger children, which is why we did this with younger children? You tend to see more shutdown, more flat affect than the older kids. Older kids learn to kind of live with it, so to speak, and they look more relaxed. Younger kids show you what they're feeling. So if they're anxious, if they're uncomfortable, they'll get that flat affect, which is not comfortable. And so teachers need to kind of be aware of that. But when kids have this kind of emotional regulation, I ask, like, are there behavioral challenges surrounding that? Do they get frustrated easily? Do they melt down easily? Do they have, like I said, easily frustrated? If you have kids that really have a difficult time regulating themselves, I think of highly sensitive children or sensory processing. So that's a spectrum as well, being a highly sensitive, overly emotional, very aware, very perceptive, very feels deeply. They may cry easier than other kids. They're just a deep feeling. We see this and we've done research on it. There's a very strong connection between selected mutism and sensory sensitivities, either highly sensitive or meeting the criteria for sensory processing. And children that have that do very well with structure, consistency, routine, and predictability, kind of knowing what, when, and where, and having that structure. Now, I'm a mother of four kids. Now they're all adults, but when they were young, having a chaotic household was pretty normal. But I can tell you the more structured our environment was, the more that I helped families with giving them that structure, kind of creating these kind of calendars to know what's happening during the week. Are they going to the dentist on Saturday? Are they have gymnastics on Friday? Having them see it and get ready for it helps them regulate. So if you notice that and are they tired? Are they hungry? Are they overstimulated, understimulated? If you're seeing these range of emotions, it's very much related to emotional regulation challenges and those suggestions tend to help. What are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I we see emotional regulation as an issue, just sort of having a meltdown that just goes on and on and and he gets very angry and aggressive and and then finally just comes and says, I'm sorry, mom, like just finally something clicks and he's able to snap out of it. But it's really difficult to stop it and calm him when we're in the moment. And I can usually pinpoint some things that have happened, you know, leading up to it, maybe a little too much sugar or a rough day or 
something unexpected that happened or, you know, just sometimes it's trying to communicate something with me that maybe I didn't give him enough of a heads up that he was unsure of what was happening. Sometimes that happens. And I think he, like, if I had, I realized if I had slowed down and kind of him through it a little bit more, it might have helped prevent some of that meltdown. So I definitely see and relate to a lot of what you're saying. I I can't emphasize enough. I think those of you that obviously know about my work and have read it and listened to podcasts, and I'm all about understanding the person. And every time I'm listening to each of you, and I don't know any of you personally, but when I'm listening to you, I start to think, what are the whys for your child? We talked about sensory sensitivities for a lot of kids, but I'm also hearing, is there a possible, and I'm not saying this is the case because I've not evaluated your child, Jen, but I do think about 30 to 40% of our kids have some underlying language difficulty putting their thoughts together to say it. And when they are in an anxious or frustrating situation, it's even harder for them. So if you notice that it's, they get easily frustrated even just explaining or getting their points across, that explaining things can be difficult, but when you go down to like get offering them a choice instead of an open-ended thought-provoking question, it's easier for them. So I do wonder for all of you, if you have kids that have a, that kind of get easily frustrated, especially if they're trying to explain themselves, you know, are there any possible language difficulties where they're putting their thoughts together and say 30 to 40 percent of kids do? But if your child is a chatterer at home, he explains things well, He's like can explain a movie, can explain a book within the age appropriate, you know, within their age developmental abilities, because a four-year-old's going to certainly be different than an eight-year-old in what they can express. But if they are in the normal range, then even when they get frustrated, it's almost like they can't explain themselves. So you have to kind of pull back and think, what were those triggers? Were they hungry, tired, overstimulated, understimulated? Like what is it? And you start to kind of journal that to figure out what are those triggers. And then you can start to prevent it. And sometimes I've seen kids melt down because they didn't realize they had a dentist appointment or mom has to go shopping and they're taking their kids after a full day of school. Whereas adults, we can say, no, I'm tired. I'm going to go home. But kids don't. They act out. Yes, I totally agree with what everyone has said so far. Going through the same thing. She's very sensitive. The sensories with the lights and even sounds, it's very prominent. If there's a lot of people talking at once, she's not able to like communicate effectively. So it's hard for her to concentrate in certain environments like that. But um, in school, she's like, she doesn't speak a word ever since like pre-K. And until now, she'll only say like maybe one word or two words, but never like a full sentence. And, but when she gets home, like you said, she, they're just a chatterbox. You know, they talk all the time. They ask a whole bunch of questions. That's like, I wish I could understand why they don't, you know, say those things in school, you know. She has a counselor, she has a speech therapist, and it's like nothing. I get nothing, so. Well, com well comfort precedes communication, and when we're in a classroom setting, sometimes it's about having 15 to 20 kids that you're not necessarily comfortable with. And so you have to build that buddy process. So comfort precedes communication. Progress doesn't happen in a group. So it's not uncommon for our kids that are sensitive kids to be overwhelmed in school. But when we start breaking it down into the buddies, the small groups in the room, the small groups out of the room, lunch bunch, friendship groups, doing get togethers outside of school and really building those strategies there and then transitioning it, sitting next to those buddies. If she makes progress with the teacher or he makes progress with the teacher and he can write and read, 
all of a sudden the teacher is asking a choice question or a direct question, giving the child time to respond, write it down and read it. Like these strategies, if your child's able to say one or two words, that's pretty good. I'm thinking a really great strategy for you would be a write and read and script approach. Because for children that can speak a word, don't underestimate seeing. So visuals to see and choices to hear are really ways, helpful ways to minimize processing, to minimize their need to think. And so those are very powerful strategies that work for, for just about anyone. But it's knowing what may need, like if your child has language or, or sensory processing issues or whatever the whys are, because there's so many different types of whys, you have to accommodate them. So some strategies are more powerful for one child versus another. Do you want to ask a question or prompt the question that Ruth had submitted that goes a little bit along with this conversation about can children grow out of having selective mutism? I thought that was a really great question to answer on this podcast because it is a popular question. I think it's a great time to introduce how we define it, how we evaluate it, and what we think it really is. No, it's a loaded question, but I, you know, when I hear the word grow out of, I, I don't know how to answer that. Here's why. Everybody's different. And I don't know what grow out of it means when they're going to do that. For example, if you have a child and you can figure out factors into why they're not communicating, what those factors are that kind of created it or maintaining it, why not deal with it when they're young? It's not like we're doing some major like intervention, like God forbid, like surgery or something. We're, we're basically helping to shape their world in a proper way to ask them questions in a proper way, to buddy them up, the small groups, how to utilize the strategies in a really benign way to help them make the progress. So to me, I don't have the answer because sometimes you'll see a family that will kind of show up or call the office rather and be like, my child has selective mutism. Let me, do you have resources? So you give them resources. And then two years later, they're contacting us again, or they're on the forums and they may have come to a conference in the past, but they've never really dealt with the treatment. And all of a sudden it's, you know, they're 16 years old. Or we see families that are teenagers and adults where they're like, well, we thought they were going to grow out of it. So how can I tell you, yes, your child's going to grow out of it? If you have a timid child and you set, the, and it's really being timid, you set the world up, they're functioning socially, emotionally, academically. It's mild. It's not really impairing them. You know, with the basic strategies, they can do really well, but I don't know why your child's not communicating. And so it's really important to have an evaluation where you can determine their stages. Like for me, families, children, teens, they taught me what this is. I didn't know what this was, right? I'm a parent. I'm a physician. I had a child with this. I was told everything and anything under the sun about my child. And over the course of just starting Selective Mutism Association, over the course of working with families, just not even doing treatment, but seeing, wow, this is anything but not speaking and realizing that there's stages of social communication. That social communication bridge is just so powerful because if you can understand their baseline and then work past that, like if their baseline is nonverbal or transitional, you're always progressing them, but you know when to bridge up, when to bridge down by using certain strategies. So I guess what I'm saying is you're not medicating every child. And I know that's a question that one of you are going to ask because that was one that Lisa Marie shared with me. Medication is only used in a percentage of individuals and that's based on functioning, how they're functioning socially, emotionally, academically, or if they're a lot older in the workplace. 
And if they are functioning, but it's not too severe and you haven't really done treatment, at least treatment that was effective, I guess you could say treatment that's that we know will work, then you don't need medication. We've seen a lot of families over the course of time where you don't need med. They just haven't been in the right treatment. If you're a child that's not, if you have a child that's not even engaging, not even comfortable non-verbally, they don't really have any peers they're connecting with, they're pretty shut down, they're walking around as professional mimes, like there's strategies you can do without using medication. And so why not give it a chance? So to get back to the question of will they outgrow it? I don't know. And I don't know when, and I don't know what those ramifications are. Because maybe I'll grow it for some is they can begin to speak, but they're not elaborate. They're not initiative. They're not expressive. Maybe they have an underlying speech and language issue and that was never addressed. So they never reached their potential because that was never accommodated. Or they have a processing challenge and their learning is affected and it was never accommodated because everyone said selectively mute. So treat the mutism, get them to speak, but they never understood the underneath. Then it's going to go on years and years. And here's what I'm going to tell you. We work with so many teens and so many adults at the Smart Center. It's a huge part of what we do. And I can't tell you how many adults I've consulted with that had these underlying whys. They never were addressed and they had ramifications as they got older. So they became more anxious. Depression started setting in in their teen years and their adult years. It affected their ability to have relationships. It affected their ability to reach their potential academically. It, it affected their ability to get a job. So in other words, I don't know. If I want to say, if you know your child has this difficulty, you guys are blessed. Your kids are little. Like, deal with it now. And it's going to be a thing of the past. And we know that because we see the kids that overcome this and we see how they're thriving. And I can't imagine had we waited. So, yeah, I hope that answers that question. What are you thinking, Jess? I'm, I'm actually a speech pathologist. So I, everything that you're saying is just, I feel like it rings so true for me. I mean, I treat adults, but I was also initially trained with kids. And I don't know, early intervention to me is just so critical. And I had to fight so hard to get the doctors to initially listen and to get her to, to find you all and to get her initial diagnosis. And I don't know, we did Communicamp. We've, we've done some treatment with you all. And I I see her making the progress. It's it's slow, and I have to remind myself that I don't get to dictate the timeline. But, you know, I see it happening, and I kind of just, I know we, I need to be there for guide and support, and, and she's going to get there with the strategies we've been taught. So, yeah, we're so grateful for finding you all. So continuing with the conversation, I think Anna had submitted a very similar question about how we work through the later stages of SM once they can, you know, speak with familiar people, but but really needing help with like initiating and keeping up conversations. So Anna, do you want to just give a little more context behind your question? Sure. My son, he's done a lot of brave work. We're very proud of him. And it's been a long process, so I would say to the other moms, keep on, keep on doing what you're doing. But now, finally, he is verbal with, you know, people he's comfortable with, which means in the classroom. But I noticed that he doesn't initiate conversation or really enter into conversation. 
he's more of a listener. And then a, a second part of that goes along with, and I've recently learned from Dr. E that as a result, he's also very silly. His avoidant behavior is he's very silly. So when he is in com- quote unquote conversation, he is acting silly or nonsensical verbiage and things like that. So I didn't know where to go as far as how to shape his conversation abilities. Where, where are you seeing the silliness? Is it in the classroom? Is it with aunts and uncles? Where are you seeing this? And what is the precursor to the silliness? So before he could even start, before he was even verbal in the classroom, I noticed that he would try to make kids laugh by doing silly things. Like that was his kind of his defense mechanism. And it was kind of like, you know, like he'd take a piece of paper and put it on his head. Like not disruptive, you know, just trying to like maybe build rapport by making kids laugh. Over time, the silliness has evolved to like trying to make his 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 peers laugh, which are little boys. So he'll say like potty words or things like that minions say, you know, like the nonsensical gibberish. And he will do it like on the playground. Or in the car, if we're carpooling, he he has done it in the classroom when they've had a guest speak, a guest teacher. So can I ask you a couple questions to follow up? Because it's hard to answer that direct <laughs> a few questions. Is your child timid by nature? My child is timid by nature, very timid and, okay. and socially anxious. Okay. And socially, so this is. Okay. Now, that was an important question. I'll tell you yeah. why. The more a child is not timid, and when you said silly, sometimes less timid kids are silly because if a very typically more timid, behaviorally inhibited children tend to be less wanting to let themselves be seen. So they aren't as silly. They tend to be more hiding in the or less obvious, so to speak. So sometimes with social anxiety, they don't want to bring attention to themselves. So when I see kids that are silly, Sometimes I'm like, hmm, what's their level of timidity there? Because they're silly. But for him, it sounds like timidity is an issue. I, I, is he a very chatter, much of a chatterbox at home? Does he chatter up a storm, very expressive, very elaborate? It's funny because he's not. He's not. Oh, no. And, and we see the, well, his, his best friend is his younger brother. Yeah. Anna, you're telling me your son at mm-hmm. home when it comes to being expressive and elaborative and explaining things, because he's eight. Didn't you tell me your son was eight? Or he's eight? approaching eight. Yeah, he's almost yeah. eight. Yeah. So you have a child that's almost eight. And if you're telling me he has difficulty elaborating, expressing himself, and gets easily frustrated, you need to get an evaluation for speech and language. Sometimes when kids are silly, they're comfortable, right? But they're not initiating, they're not elaborating. And so they become very defensive and they become silly because they can't do something easily. So if you have a child that at home, okay, because you got to think about it. In school, all of our kids, almost every kid is not, they're not necessarily elaborative. Even when they start to speak, they're not elaborative. They're not necessarily initiative. They're not conversational. That's across the board. That And because the verbal stage starts with quiet one or two barely audible words to regular volume, initiative, elaborative, and conversational. It's a huge stage, stage three. So even for our verbal kids, and we do this at camp too, and when we're working in individual, we have to work on those skills. 
they're verbal. They're verbal everywhere. They're just not initiative, elaborative, conversational, conversation starters, the whole nine yards. But I also want to say that for an eight-year-old that's verbal, but they're not initiative and elaborative and expressive at home, then that's where you have to start to think the why of SM, 30 to 40% of kids, your son may be falling into that. And it may be nothing more than opportunity through COVID. Like through COVID, kids lost a lot of skills. They lost social skills. They lost language skills. They, they have difficulty reading faces. We see it across the board. And we see it at the Smart Center because all the families that contact us, the questions and the things that they're saying, we didn't see as much of prior to COVID. It's such a vast amount of like, my kid did have normal social skills. Now it seems like she doesn't really understand or she's misinterpreting. And we didn't see this as much. And I really think walking around with a mask for two years and missing those critical times between the ages of your children is really a huge amount of time that they weren't around others. So is it an acquired speech and language issue because of lack of opportunity with others? Or do they really have an underlying expressive language disorder where you may need to work with a speech pathologist and get an evaluation? I would definitely have an evaluation. If you were my patient, I would absolutely recommend it because if they have an expressive language, if your son has an expressive language, there's lots we can do to help him. First of all, understanding that open-ended, thought-provoking questions are going to be hard. So in school, I would be doing more choice and direct questions, more scripting. Kids with language issues do better with scripting, reading words, reading sentences, the write and read, giving them more time to put their thoughts together than maybe somebody else, focusing on other children first. All of these are viable strategies that work really well with the type of child you're describing. What are you thinking, Anna, from what I said? No, I think that's, I mean, that's, it's, it seems so obvious, but no, it seems to be reasonable. I don't know why I didn't think about that, but I think you're, what you're describing is exactly, could exactly be it. I think we definitely need to do that. We, he was evaluated, but this was years ago. This was when he was three. Mm-hmm. When Need a new one. And exactly. So you need a new one. And yeah. I definitely recommend the testing for sure. You can try yeah. it district. If not, you can go to a private center and have it done. Like if your school district can't do it, meaning, well, your child's not going to talk, we can't get it done, or you're not satisfied with the result, you can ask for an independent educational eval. It's called an IEE where the school will pay for an outside evaluation at a private center. So you would want to talk to private centers. I mean, we do this at the Smart Center. We do assessments. We do speech and language. We do psychoed. We do autism testing. We do it all. And we do this because of so many kids that need it. So it's a big part of what we do. But I would definitely have this for you as a first step because what's going to happen is the silliness is going to persist because that's a defense mechanism. That's his way of functioning and kind of dealing with something he can't deal with well. No, that that's, I think that sounds, that makes so much sense. Oh, I'm I so glad. That. I'm so glad that we're having this open discussion amongst each other because there's so many times that I'm not sure if your son is in treatment and you certainly don't need to go into detail about it, but I do find that a lot of professionals are very focused on speaking and not. And, you know, seasoned clinicians that even have that focus on speaking I know will understand that maybe they need to work on more 
engaging and nonverbal skill building, whatever that might be. But for us at the Smart Center, that whole philosophy of the whole person and our understanding, because nobody is just mute. There's always a reason. And that's really what you say. You say there's always a reason. It, they're not just not speaking. So if we focus too much on getting a kid to speak without understanding them, I'm telling you, you're missing the boat. And I know it because that's the kids we see. We see so many kids where it was so much focus on speaking that they just became speech phobic. They became professional mimes. They became high expectation kids because that underlying piece was missing. Thanks, Dr. I'm going to jump in and ask some of Jen's questions. So this relates back to some type of sensory stuff. I'm going to start with the question about, you know, not being able to leave the house without a baseball cap. So, Jen, if you could tell me a little bit more about that question, and we can jump into some of those answers. Yeah, it started a, a few months ago. He just will not go around other people unless he has a baseball cap on his head. And if he doesn't have that, something that has a hood. The one day he insisted on, on wearing his winter coat into the store because he hadn't brought his hat. And I think it's definitely like a, a security thing for him, but even more so like a way to hide himself from others. And I guess I'm just, it, it's gotten to the point where it's all the time. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's something that I should try to work with him to not have to do or if it's something that I should just let go because it's a coping strategy for him. So just your recommendation, I guess, for that specific thing. So this is a very great example of look, listen, and learn. This is where I say the kids tell us everything by what they don't say necessarily, right? So your son is putting on a baseball cap to go out to kind of help him feel more comfortable. It does remind me, I have to say, I'm, I'm Dr. E, I know that, but I'm also a mom of a child that had this. And my Sophie, she would not have her hair changed. She always had to have it down with a hair band. And if you moved that band or it was a different width, I'm telling you, she wouldn't go out. We couldn't cut her hair past like one millionth of, an, of a centimeter. Like she, And she always had to have her dresses when she was younger, right? So this is a very strong social anxiety trait of not wanting to bring attention to themselves, I would say is a question I'd say is like, you have to pick and choose. Like you can't wear like your baseball cap to a, you know, formal affair. You'd have to pick and choose, but I'd want to know from him, what does he tell you about why he wears his cap? He says he doesn't want anyone to see his hair. He says, like, so we, we've said like, okay, we're going to let your hair grow out then. You know, I was trying to show him some pictures of hairdos. I mean, I, I think it's more than just the hair. We pick my daughter up from school each day and in the pickup line, he, he wants to make sure he, he doesn't want them to see his hair. But I, you know, so I think it's a little bit more than just the hair. I, I do think it, he, he likes feeling yeah. Yeah, my my experience is the younger children will th wear things like hats. The kids get older, they wear hoodies. It, it is a social anxiety trait. I, I, and it's picking and choosing the battle here. If he's not able to wear a hat in school, like I think working with him, he's a little guy. You know, we talked about he's a little guy. He's not an older child. So it's hard to reason with a child so young. It is because for him, it's about comfort. 
maybe you start to say, like, is it by, like, is it affecting him in school? Like, is he wearing his hat in school? He doesn't go to a formal preschool right now. We just do a one day a week parent and week class. And oh, he does, okay. he's allowed to wear it there. Okay. But okay. Uh, okay. that's where we're gearing up for September to go to school. So, you know, I wasn't sure if this is something I should request as an accommodation that they would allow that or if it's something we should be working towards moving away from. I mean, from. I think like if it's like a lot of times you can't wear a hat. They, I don't think they really let hats in school wear hats in school like in a public it's like talking to him about other ways to help him feel comfortable and are there specific places he does it and maybe when you're working in treatment like you indicated earlier you're going to be starting treatment you have an intensive in another week or a couple weeks Mm -hmm. whenever that might be that would be an area of focus in your treatment because sometimes you can change hats up make them a little smaller making you know kind of change them up and eventually you start taking them down and having a timer to see how long you don't need it but I'd want to know, like, what situation is he in that he feels like that much attention that he wants to put the hat on? And I will say the more you do exposures, the more you're doing the real world activities, the more you're having peers over, the more you're getting out there and about, he's going to start to feel more comfortable in these settings. So I would absolutely use your exposures, even with the hat on, as opportunities for him to build engaging and social communication. Like you said, he's not really in school and he's not really separated from you. That's not going to be easy to make that transition. So that's going to be something you're going to work on in therapy, but you'll be able to work on like going to the school and visiting and opportunities to be with the teacher and get connected with other peers that might be in his class. I mean, there's lots of things you can work on, but I would really work on exposures with your son because I think before you take that hat off, he's got to feel more comfortable out and about. And I'm sensing he doesn't. So the comfort has to be there once he's got the comfort and it's no big deal and he's playing his games and he's going out and he's more outward, then you can start thinking about weaning away the hat. If you wean it away too quickly and he doesn't have the comfort out and about, it's going to cause a lot of stress and anxiety because that's his like sense of security right now. So he's going out like this, but a lot of exposures, tons and tons. I can't tell you enough. So here's a question everybody asks me and maybe you guys can answer it. How often do you do exposures? How often should you do the out and about in stores, the out and about in restaurants, the out and about in with aunts and uncles and friends. How often do you think you should do it? As often as you can. <laughs> as much as possible. I often say 100 times in 10 days and people go, what? And I go, look, you can do 10 times in CBS. But the families that do the most with younger children and your kids are in that range, it's games they play to cross the bridge. It's making it fun. It's creating the visuals, the reward charts for playing the games. It's not about talking. It's about, and a lot of times the kids will do the bridges, like they all make their bridges, right? We just got done Communicamp, right, Lisa Marie? All the kids have their bridges and they're showing them off and they're showing their parents and they're playing their games and they're doing it all. But it's all about the games to play to cross the bridge, not about talking. Because these kids are brave just showing up. And I need to say that because I we have so many kids that we see that can't talk to people at all. They're very shut down. They're not engaging. And for them, just showing up and doing a handover takeover is huge. So for them, that's that's brave. And so it's all about understanding their baseline, starting there and helping them realize what they can do, guys, not what they're not doing. We all tend to focus so much on what they don't do and you need to do it and you should do it. Let's focus on all that they can do. Let's focus on all that they can do. And by doing that, they sit up higher. They seem more positive. They smile more. 
They're willing to play the games. It's really amazing to see that evolution. Another follow-up to Jen's question was that she was alluding to is, you know, with your son joining daycare or preschool in the fall, you're worried about separation anxiety. So I think that could be another topic that we could dive into. Doctor, if you have some strategies or, you know, different terms that we use to address that. Do you, Ruth and Anna, do you also have any issues with separation issues? Yes, I do. Okay. Okay. So separation. Separation Separation is very very common in terms of like, especially for kids that haven't had a lot of independence from their parents. We saw a lot more separation anxiety after COVID because they were with their family so much. And so it was very scary to start doing things without them. So I would be working on separation anxiety as much as you can, utilizing other family members that they're going and doing and spending time with. Grandparents is a real safe one. Any aunts and uncles, if they have playdates, going to the playdate while you're there, but them building that connection with that other child, starting to leave that playdate by like, I'm just going to go pick up ice cream. I'll be back. Or 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 the child's mom and you are now in another room and you're sitting outside on the deck and they're in the house or whatever it might be really working on ways to build their independence away from you because if if they're very dependent on you, we've got to give them ways to want to increase their independence. And that can start at home. It can start at home with chores and responsibilities. And it's amazing how just that independence, also giving them decisions to make where you're not making it for them. I often see, and this goes across the ages where we always make decisions for our kids. You want this, right? Instead of what do you want and giving them opportunities to make decisions increases their independence and also building their skills in an area, finding something that they love and they do well, that's confidence building. So separation anxiety improves as they are building their independence and their confidence. And, but there's something I want to tell you guys, because I'm also cognizant of what parents feel because one, I'm that parent that felt this, but that's kind of fake it till you make it. We're often really nervous for our kids. We're very scared for their changes and we have to work on that ourselves. Our kids are highly sensitive. One of the traits for very highly sensitive kids is they can pick up on cues really quickly. They can pick up on when you're sad, when you're nervous, when you're angry, when you're frustrated, when you're detached, when it, whatever it might be. And so because of that, they hone in. And if you're nervous and you're scared, for separation, like you're going somewhere and you're like got the deer in the headlight look, that's going to be like, wait, why are you scared? Why are you nervous, mom? So we have to work on our own worries and fears and have that confidence because the confidence that we have will absolutely project over to their children. And I will say just again, coming off Communicamp weekend, this was something tremendous that we talked about with the parents where if we just educate you guys and work with you guys, your children are going to make changes, even if you, they're not even actively involved in treatment, because the way you are, the way you act, the way you ask questions, how you set the world up for these young children, how you bring in, them into social communication opportunities, how you educate others to question them, when to question them, what to focus on, your children are going to make changes. But your anxiety and projecting that is also going to affect them. So. I get that the nervousness with the separation and starting in preschool or going out and about, but 
that's going to be something that in addition to working with their separation, your separation too. <laughs> right? Because it's nerve wracking for you. You're nervous for them. And we feel their anxiety and their worries. But I think if we set it up in the right way and you do this step by step, you're going to start to just see really nice separation and you're going, it's going to work. It always does. I don't want you to think it won't work. It will work. Ruth, I, I saw you had something to say. Oh, I was just agreeing with everything you said because it's like, it's everything is to a T, everything. Like she could read my face like completely. She's very, you know, good with facial cues. You know, I can be upset and she's, I'm like, no, I'm not upset. And she's like, I see, I see your face. I see it scrunching up here. I'm like, I'm trying not to show that. And she already knows. So that's exactly why I was shaking my head about that one. Sometimes families will show up at the smart center. And I've said to the front desk, if you see a family and they come in and they look angry at you and their face is flat and they're like, hi, my name is Robert. We're here for an appointment. And they're very short answered with you and they're barely making eye contact. That's their anxiety. That's not because they don't like you. And so we're used to, right, Lisa Marie? <laughs> yeah. We're also right? highly sensitive at this center. Yeah, everyone's highly sensitive. We cry every day for something, something good usually. Yes. And it's like, you know, we're all very emotional and we get really, you know, but the families that we see are also very sensitive. So I think, I hope that's helpful to you just to know that if you have your own anxieties and worries and fears that you have someone one you can talk to, but really you work on that and be that fake it to make it upbeat and positive and know and trust whoever's guiding you in the process. You know, one of the wonderful things about unspoken words and the reason, frankly, that I wanted to do this was that there's just so much here. There's so much in my head over the course of my career. And I get my greatest joy when I connect with people, when I can see that they're understanding and that conceptualization is just so wonderful because it's that understanding conceptualization of your child, not on their symptom, but who they are. That is really what this is about. And if I can help you just make one change and you see progress from just one thing we talked about, then it's all worth everything. So I want to jump into another question. This is from just that was submitted from who's who's a listener of our podcast. And they were asking about what to do when exposures don't work out as as well as you'd hope. What what do you do when you've you feel like you failed that that opportunity or that exposure? So I'd want to understand what that exposure was, and I'd want to understand what they were doing in that exposure that they meant like a failed exposure. Was the failed exposure because they were doing the interacting and they were doing the speaking for their child? So that was a lost opportunity and their child was shadowing them and they're like, oh, darn, I like I could have thought of 10 different ways to engage my child in this situation. Or is it a failed exposure because the expectation was too great and they were expecting their child to go up to a store clerk and ask for something. But meanwhile, their true baseline is they're barely engaging and using parent as an intermediary is a, a feat for them. So I guess that's my question. So I don't know what failed exposures mean. Right. And I think so, another way to to kind of rephrase that is maybe defining what the difference between enabling and bridging down. Yeah. Enabling and too much pressure, really. Right. Like 
So again, it's important to know a child or an individual's baseline stage. And what does that mean? What is their highest stage they can accomplish with very minimal anxiety? And even for kids that are transitioning into speech, the engaging activity of handing and taking and front line being in front to kind of what that does is that welcomes others. We want others to question them. We want others to engage them. And of course, there's common questions and there's all sorts of things we work on in treatment to get them ready for that. But if you're not doing frontline handover, takeover and engaging strategies, their progress is going to be limited. So for our timid kids, it's really easy for parents to do the talking and interacting. It's really easy for siblings that are more outgoing to do the talking and the interacting. And ironically, although I don't think it's ironic, they tend to bond in the classroom with the more outgoing and talkative child because they're buffered behind. And so that's a big part of treatment is getting rid of that buffer in a safe way. So it's not ripping the hat off, right, Jen? It's doing it in a safe way. And I often talk about, and, and I think this is important, and I think my triangle philosophy, Lisa Marie, is, comes into play here. And so the triangle is hard to talk about in a podcast, but if you were to put your hands together where your two index fingers touch and then your thumbs come together, if you think of the top as a person asking a question and on the one side is a parent and on the other side at the bottom is the child, very often when someone asks a question as a parent, the one angle of the parent to the person, you're asking, you start answering for them. So your child's left out and left field. They're not doing any communicating, any engaging because we're talking directly to that person, that part of the triangle. Then there's the other part of the triangle where the child is at the bottom and the person again is at the top and the parent's like, go ahead, tell them what your name is. Go ahead, tell them what you want to eat. Go ahead, tell them what we're looking for in a store. You're asking them to put their thoughts together to say it when they're not even engaging. So a real safe way for most kids is when we bring them into communication using questions like choice questions and using visuals to prepare them, the same visuals over and over. And that's called the triangle. So you are pushing them if you are asking them to speak and they're not ready. Now we have tons of kids and Anna, this might be your son because you said he's verbal. So maybe just through a script approach, he's able to say, hi, do you have chocolate covered strawberries? Or hi, I'll have, you know, a cheeseburger. But maybe you need to bring your child in. Do you want a bugs or a burger? And then no answer, bugs or burger, tell me. And you utilize that kind of bridge of you guys as a safe way. And the more you do it, the louder they get, the louder they get. And eventually they're loud enough for that person to hear. And so that use of the verbal intermediary is very powerful. So to answer your question, Lisa Marie, enabling is when we're doing all the talking and all the interacting and they're not even engaging. It has nothing to do with talking. They're just basically there as like just there. Or, and then there's pressure or too much expectation, like maybe the exposure was too much of an expectation where you're saying, go ahead, do this. You're going to get points. You're going to be super brave if you tell them what you want to eat. Meanwhile, that particular child isn't able to do that yet. They can't do that yet. That It causes such anxiety, such stress that they shut down. They avoid, I'm never going to do it. I hate you. Leave me alone. I'm never going to talk attitude. And so over time, they become more and more avoidant, more and more avoidant. You can't talk to them about it. And it's like, my child doesn't talk. My child doesn't talk because everything was about talking without respecting their baseline, res respecting that we needed to bring them in in a safe way. And we needed to set it up in a, in, a, in a way that utilized visuals and utilized the way you questioned them to bring them in in a safe way. So does that make sense? Yeah. And I think we're going to have a, like when we post our podcast episodes, we have related resources and we definitely have something on the triangle. So we, for our listeners, 
And for our participants, we will have, you know, a reference document in case that didn't all, you know, come together. <laughs> I, I'm hoping it did. And, I, and I'm really feeling like just based on the content we've talked about with all of you, I feel like there's going to be a lot of listeners that are going to make a lot of progress just from this podcast <laughs> because I've given away so many wonderful strategies that people can utilize. They can relate to their child because I think all of you having read your questions, talked to Lisa Marie Pryor about your questions, that these are really great questions. Like this is going to relate to so many people. So I personally thank you for this because you're helping so many people by doing this. Really, because your question elicited this conversation. So I want to ask you guys, Jen, Ruth, and Anna, with what I was talking about with the fail, with what Lisa Marie brought up with the failed exposure and then what I was talking about, what are you thinking from what I just said? How are you feeling in terms of exposures or how does that resonate with you when I was talking about the triangle? I mean, I think that that really resonated and I always had to keep coming. When, when we, we did a lot more exposures when my son was in the earlier stages and I just remember thinking, a reading somewhere, maybe from you, Dr. E, way back years, a couple years ago, that you always want them to end with success. So I always tried to bridge down until I could make sure that whatever it was that we were trying to do, somehow there would be a success before we just gave up. And also just making sure that it wasn't too hard, just, you know, just... I always erred on being like more conservative because you could always build bridge up from there than, than the opposite. And really trusting your child's feelings. One of the things that is very, very important is we use feeling scales, a zero to three for younger children and a zero to five as kids get older. So for your seven, eight year olds here are usually a zero to five where five is the hardest or scariest, and then zero is the easiest. And for younger kids, like the four-year-olds, it's zero to three. And you can use a bar graph. You can use people's faces. I like bar graphs. And here's one reason I do this. I do this because it's very difficult for kids to explain what they're feeling. So sometimes they'll shut down. Sometimes they'll act out. Sometimes they say nothing. So giving them words for their feelings and helping them rate and grade their feelings. If you trust their feelings and, and you look at them and you give them words for their feelings and you can read your child, and I have to point this out in therapy all the time to them and help them relate to their feelings, especially when you give them words for their feelings. That seemed easier this time. Or you know what? That seemed a little hard. Next time we're going to try it a little different. It, it's, it's, it's amazing how when you kind of let go of those reins a little bit, when you loosen it a little bit and you open up to them and you really kind of go, wow, this is hard. This is a little scary. Like, let's try it this way. And you know what? You did a great job when we wrote it out. If you can talk to your child that way, you start to see them open up to you even more. It's amazing. They start telling you things. They, you're like, whoa. And we see this from day one to two to three at Communicamp where we teach the parents this and they come back each day and go, wow, my son actually told me that when he doesn't give his order, it's because he feels a three out of three. Or we were able to use the intermediary today when we practiced in the store and he said it was a two out of five. Like he was helped. Like we realized like these are things we can do now. And he feels so excited and he's brave just by doing that. And he's on the bridge. It's not like he's like, no, I'm never going to do it. And for the kids that are never going to do it, it's because they just didn't feel success because the expectation was too great. 
So using feelings is really, really important. And sometimes I work with therapists that are behavioralists only, and they don't do a lot of feeling work. And I'm all about behavior changes and working. It's a very behavioral, cognitive behavioral program, SCAT. It's about social communication anxiety and understanding it. But it's also about using exposures and behavioral, but it's also about trusting the children's feelings and really using feelings to help guide the game process and the goal process. And also giving you ways like, wow, that was hard. Oh, there were so many people there. There was the neighbor from across the street that was at the restaurant. No wonder he bridged down. Or now we're going in, out to dinner with Aunt Bertha and Uncle Bill, and he's bridging down. It's not you need to talk because you did before. It's understanding when to bridge up and when to bridge down. And that's what you learn. Yeah, I think that's really validating for for the kids in treatment is just understanding themselves and and giving them a tool to to communicate with their with their loved ones. I often find it really interesting how when I talk to families, how they often think it's just the exposures and it's not really talking about this. I'm, and you don't go running up to a child and go, oh, you have selective mutism. We need to deal with this. But it's really helping them understand that things are scary or hard and understanding their comfort. So when a child's like, I didn't talk today, it's like, oh, you must not have been comfortable today. Or I talked today. It's like, oh, you must have been more comfortable today. That's how you want to talk to them instead of focusing on the talking. But it's really important. And families are often amazed when we show videos like during camp and even when we're doing things in treatment, how you're working through the strategies. They're using the verbal intermediary strategically. They're shaping sounds into words strategically to get there. Then from there, you move up through keep it going questions and whatever it might be. I'm always amazed how many families and how many professionals I consult with that didn't realize how much you have to be in the trenches with these kids, really teaching them these strategies, really helping them know what to use and training like helping them work across. It's not just lower anxiety and it's going to happen. It doesn't. It's about the strategies and how you use them and the kids barely being proactive with them and having that ownership over it. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on an hour. And I think before we close down, I want to just take a moment with, with each participant for any final thoughts, feelings, questions. So Jen, we'll start with you. I just, if it's okay, just to jump back to the separation anxiety quickly. Like I said, my son isn't in preschool right now. We had tried at the beginning of the year and we were just hitting like a lot of school refusal, just melting down, wasn't able to go in. And, and like Jessica had said before, we, you know, the schools just really weren't allowing any contact, any walking in, any of that. So moving towards next year, I think that I'm just trying to figure out some good accommodations that I could maybe request to help him. I think that if your child is starting pre-K or is it kindergarten? Pre it'll be pre-K. I think when you, you know, in your treatment to learn about your son and what strategies work well for him, that's going to be really important because okay. it's hard to provide accommodation. It's, it's hard to provide interventions without knowing what strategies work best. But also, without a doubt, you're in Pennsylvania, you said. Yes. You're going to go to your district and request an IEP. Okay. Absolutely in your case. I don't even need to do an eval to tell you. Because mm -hmm. you have a child that's never really been in school, has extreme social anxiety symptoms as far as like 
the hat you were saying, and also the fact that the separation anxiety and the selective mutism. So mm-hmm. please know that no matter what the name of this diagnosis is, it's just to get school-based accommodations, interventions. It's to get insurance reimbursement. That's it. The names of these disorders are just that. You're treating your child and it's not going to stay with him forever. He, your child's going to do fine. They will overcome it. Your child's young. I want you all to have that hope because there's no one that continues with this if you finish this process and it won't take as long as you think by any means. But you're going to need an IEP and you're going to have that ability to get that because you're going to have an evaluation that's going to, you know, di- has diagnosed your child already through that you had the selective mutism eval, you said. Right. Yes. So yeah. your child already has a diagnosis. You can go with that alone. And then because you said you were having the intensive, you're going to have a comprehensive step-by-step report that's going to have accommodations, interventions right in there that's personalized to your child. Okay. So you're going to have all that. That's one advantage that why you're doing the intensive. So you're going to get it, but you should be considering going to your district sooner than later and putting that request in because they're going to need to do an evaluation before the start of the school year and hopefully get it started now first, like next year. I think Pennsylvania, they go into the preschools. So no matter what your private preschool is, they'll go in and do this. Okay. And they'll help you with that because you're going to need someone to maybe, you might even need an aide. I don't know. You might need somebody that can work more one-on-one with him. I'm not sure what the specific needs are, but they're going to need an education and a training for sure how to deal with your son. Okay. Okay. With the proper interventions and accommodations, your son's going to do fine. Thanks, Jen. We'll kick it over to Ruth. Any final thoughts, questions, feelings? Well, my daughter already has an IEP ever since she was in pre-K, so I'm kind of used to all of the therapy sessions she's been getting. I just feel like the takeaway that I got from this was like not to push it, you know, not to push her to do things right away, you know, to just to be patient, even though I really want her to talk. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's just a process and it, it goes in baby steps and you have to take your time. Like you said, every child is individual and you just have to go along with how they're able to cope with it. So, and also this is a, a very good, um, you know, group session because it makes me feel like I'm not alone because I, around here, there's not a lot of children with selective mutism. So I always like thought to myself, like, am I the only one? Am I thinking all these things, you know? So it, it really helps me a lot. That's supportive. So. Oh, that, that's amazing. Keep in touch, Ruth. Yeah. There's definitely yeah. a community here. Yeah, we, yeah, we are. We, it's an amazing community. I will say, I will say Ruth, that, that I'm, not, I'm not sure who you're working with, but you should be working with someone to guide you through the next steps because you don't want to keep them, like keep your child in other, words, in other words, you can keep moving. They shouldn't stay stagnant. And so even though it's, yes, take the pressure off, but it's always about using strategies strategically. That makes sense. Yes. You're always working to bridge so that they can become a competent social communicator in all settings. And sometimes it's about how you're doing your exposures and how the teachers are questioning and when they're questioning and where. So that guidance is going to be really important. And you told me, how old is your child? Almost eight? She's eight, yeah. Yeah. So your child is old enough 
that she can have a really good understanding of this. And so her active participant by doing games, but having some goals and knowing what she's doing and her awareness to this is also an important part as they get older. For a four-year-old, they play the games. They may not even always know what the games are for other than playing games. Sometimes we don't even introduce the bridge for certain young children, three, four years old. We don't even introduce it because it's just too much for them that's not needed by just parents changing their ways, by playing just give my order game or scavenger hunt games and using visuals and checking it off in a certain way is enough for those children. But I can tell you as they get older and you have an eight-year-old and then Anna, you have an almost eight-year-old, their active participant of knowing the bridge and why you're doing it is really important because if you're going to say something like bugs in a burger and they're like, oh, why are you doing that? They need to know that some of the reasons you're doing is to help them cross the bridge. And you see what I mean? So it's you're not trying to sneak ever anything in on these kids. The minute they think we're sneaking, it means either we're not talking to them about it in a way that's appropriate for their age and their development, or we are trying to trick them. And if we are trying to trick them, you've lost them in this process. And then there becomes this barrier. It's all about talking openly, acknowledging feelings. It's all about the process by talking and rewarding their positives and, and really just talking about what they're doing, not about emphasizing what they're not doing. And it, it, it really does work hand in hand, that focus on the positives and minimize the negatives. Any final thoughts, questions, feelings? I just wanted to thank you so much. This has been really informative and we just, our family feels that you are center and you have just been really big answer to prayer and a blessing. And we really feel like we're more equipped to move forward in helping him. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Anna, do you have I just wish that I would have found something like this you know, when, when my son was three, but I'm, I, I love the support. I love this community right here. And I've just learned so much from you, Dr. E, just listening to your podcast and reading and reading the reading material. And I just have so much hope and I have so much hope for your, for Ruth's and Jen's children as well. The only, the only thing which I, I had a question that you've touched on Dr. E is how much do you talk to these, talk to your child about selective mutism and their difficulties? Do you, like, now I'm, I'm open about it, but I don't know. I don't want that to become part of the identity. Sometimes I don't know what, you know, how much that I think talking about things is good. So I don't know. So, so sometimes it's getting the guidance from the person like a therapist you're working with. For me, when I see a family, one of the first things I say is, oh, what did you tell Robbie why you guys came here today? And we kind of give mom and dad the words to say and, you know, the information they get. But sometimes it's, oh, well, we wanted to help Robbie get become more comfortable in school. Sometimes you've got the family that didn't read what we sent them. <laughs> and they'll say, we came because we wanted to find her, her our voice and we want her to talk everywhere. And it's like, oh my God, you guys need a lot of education. But so we want to talk when I'm working with kids and I'm thinking your ch child's almost eight. I, I really do talk about things can be hard or scary. And I, and I will draw out the bridge and I'll help them realize where they are, like what the parts of the bridge are that when you're pointing and they'll draw themselves like that's first stage of pointing. And then 
using mom or dad, because all kids young use mom or dad as an intermediary. It happens naturally without you even doing it most of the time. But there are ways you can do it in a way that brings them into the communication opportunity. And so they'll draw themselves with telling mom or dad, and then they draw themselves using words. And I'll draw it with them and I'll say, this is when words come out. This is when words aren't. So I'm very matter of fact. I talk to them because they know, right? I'm not like, you're going to talk. We're going to do whatever we can to get you to talk. I talk about the bridge so they see all the stages. And then from there, I'll say, okay, well, when you're home with your mommy and daddy and your sister, I'll say, let's say they have a sister. I'll say, and they ask you questions. It's pretty easy to use your words, right? Like I'll say something like that. Or when you're in school and the teacher asks a question in front of the class, that can be kind of scary. So maybe you're here on the bridge and I'll, because we would have already known where they are by what the evaluation. So we always know their baseline coming into these things. And so you start to see them look at you and yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I do tell mommy there. Oh, I can put sounds together to make words. Like I'm just kind of, giving you a broad kind of perspective here, but that's how we talk to them. So they start to see where they're at. And then if, like, cause your child's eight, right? Um, I wouldn't necessarily be doing this, Jen, with your child, cause your child is so little. Your child, it's maybe training you and seeing what strategies work by the way we engage them and bring them into communication. Then we translate that to you and teachers, what we learn, but you would be setting up the games. But remember, a big part of this is what you're doing. So every family that we see gets parenting goals, concrete parenting goals. And with those parenting goals, they're specific to what your needs are at that time. And they'll be tweaked and changed as we move along. But that's how, Anna, we talk about their feelings. We give them words, like even at home, if they're frustrated because they fought with their siblings, we might go, you're really frustrated by that, the way you guys were fighting over there. So you want to give them words for their feelings so they start to identify with it. And then we also use that feelings chart when they're playing the games. And I'll often, as kids get older, say, all right, before we did that game, what did you think it was going to feel like when you were doing it to give my order? And they're like, thought it was going to be a, a two. All right, now that you did it and you were able to actually write it and read it, what does that feel like? It feels like a one. So basically it got easier or it stays the same. And so you talk to them about this and that's how they start to that's how you start to what I call demystify, deal with the pink elephant in the room. Very matter of fact, nothing emotional. We talk about the bridge, where they are. So, so many times, because this is about the diagnosis, like selective mutism, it's such a lousy name for this. If they, if That's somebody a whole other just, episode. <laughs> whole other episode. So I'm just saying, if we could change this to social communication anxiety and get the word selective mutism out, there's so many kids that would be overcoming this quicker. Because the focus wouldn't be on talk, 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 get them to talk. It would be understanding them and then developing a step-by-step -step individualized program based on their needs, not on their neighbor's needs. Like all of you have different kids. I'm seeing different things with all of your kids just by the, the small amount of things we discussed today. They're different. So I do want to, I need to kill the party, but you know, that is all the time we have for today. I know we can go on for hours and this is really exciting because we just started these installations of live chats with parents, and I feel like we can just continue doing this. <laughs> yeah, I think we are too. For me personally, Lisa Marie, I love the energy. I love seeing their faces, all of you. I just love it. It's such a connection. And for me, this is such a big part of why I do this and why I love it and why I love, I love talking to the groups at camp. It's like, that's my energy and my fuel because 
to see the changes in you guys and the, the facial expressions. Like, that's so wonderful because I know there were some light bulb moments for you today. And I think that's amazing. So thank you for this opportunity. Yes. Thanks to everyone. Thanks to our parent participants and our listeners. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. If you have questions on anything covered in this podcast episode, we want to answer them. Please head to selectivemutismcenter.org forward slash ask D-R-E. And we'll do our very best to answer them in upcoming podcast episodes, Smart Center newsletters, and on social media. Thank you.